Mighty Ape is Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. With everything from movies, music, games, toys, books, hobbies and more, Mighty Ape is your one-stop shop for the things that matter most. They constantly have hot deals and exclusive promos. And if you visit their website on the click-through banner on fakechef.net's homepage, then your purchase will help support Good Movie Monday. Mighty Ape, Australia's entertainment and pop culture superstore. Good morning. Good morning. that it is a good morning whether I want it or not. Please go away, let me speak for the love of God! The sooner we do this episode, the sooner I can have a couple more of those lollies. <laughs> how are you, Ben? Good, mate, how are you? I'm really good. I'm, I'm going to say right off the bat that uh, we're in for a weird kind of show today. <laughs> aren't, aren't all our shows weird? It's another one of those themes that sounded awesome in theory, but then it's just a pain in the ass in practice. <laughs> I struggled a little bit. <laughs> so, if you don't mind, I'm going to jump straight into the formalities and welcome everybody to Good Movie Monday, the weekly podcast presented by FakeShemp.net, home of the nerdy cinematic ramblings. My name is Glenn Cochran, long and loose and full of juice, and my co-host with the most... Is none other than Ben Halwig, who has a thirst for the worst and is ready to burst. <laughs> I have no fucking idea where any any of that came from, um, or what it means. But Doctor Zeus would be proud. Yeah, you know what? I'm I've been thinking about it during your opening spiel, and I do it. I do mind. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just cut all that. Cut it all. <laughs> Oh, geez. Coming up today, uh, we're going to be chatting with Kia Roche-Turner, the director of the upcoming Wormwood Apocalypse, which is screening this Sunday night at the closing night of MonsterFest. I thought I'd uh, quickly get one final MonsterFest plug-in before it wraps, so stick around for that. We have what I can only assume is going to be a fun show for you this week. We are talking about new film discoveries, and if you're wondering what that even means, then that makes three of us. <laughs> ben, what are we doing today? Well, I think it's... I think it's fairly self-explanatory, although <laughs> you obviously had an issue with it. <laughs> it's just supposed to be movies that we've just discovered. Like, okay, they can they can they can be old, they can be new, but you just for whatever reason haven't watched it up until recently, and you're like, "Wow, that was fucking excellent." So maybe I overthought it or misinterpreted because I I went looking for movies I'd never heard of before, so right. I went down a rabbit hole of you know just trying to find it. Ooh, never like, heard of that like before. A, right, I was like, <laughs> I've heard of this. It's out. But, you know, I, I kind of, th and when I thought about it, I thought maybe Ben means movies that we've known about a long time, but only just got around to watching. So like I've done, I've actually, funnily enough, I've gone both. There's one that I had never heard of. Yep. And one that I'd known about for a long time and just had never got around to watching. There we go. I feel a bit better then. So <laughs> I've mixed and matched. Excellent. Um, well, Welcome, everybody. Please do stick around because the gang are here to uh, present their weekly segments. Jared Garn from Monster Pictures has you covered for this week's home entertainment releases. Guillermo Troncoso from Screen Run will lay some movie news on you. Chloe Ritchie from Movie Night with the Ritchie Girls podcast will tackle today's theme of a new film discovery of her own. And Adam will follow that up with one of his. And um, all the way from Kentucky, the lads from Bonehead will either soothe your ear holes or violate them. It's a, it's a matter of perspective. And to all those, uh, was it ASR fans out there? This one's ASMR. for you. ASMR. ASMR, this one's for you. <laughs> Ben's just discovered what that's all about. Yeah. <laughs> it's, I find it fascinating. 
<laughs> that and mukbanging. <laughs> we, we like the mukbang. Right. Only because we like eating. Yeah. I just didn't realize I could get paid for it. I thought I like I thought I would I would have to pay for it in the form of a heart attack or uh, diabetes. <laughs> but uh, I didn't realize that there was a there was a monetary incentive as well. Yes, well, you know, maybe uh the 2022 season of Good Movie Monday <laughs> has a whole new flavor. It'd just be like things to listen to while you're watching a movie, like there it's like background noise. So you can still watch the movie still focus on it, but in the background there's just a bit of Mate. Like rubbing. I might orgasm when I edit this. <laughs> <laughs> I've just pricked your prostate. <laughs> oh, as the saying goes. <laughs> so before we jump into things, right now, as in this week, uh, as I mentioned, Monster Fest is in full swing at Cinema Nova. In fact, it's going to be running all the way till this coming Sunday, which is December 12th. And if you haven't already gotten along, it's never too late. Check out the Monster Fest website and snatch up a few tickets. As well as the Wormwood chat we have coming up, we've also recorded some cool interviews with filmmakers from the festival and they're currently available for you to check out for free. Everything we do is free. None of that Patreon nonsense. <laughs> Does anyone even Patreon anymore? Like, I, f- I feel like OnlyFans <laughs> has completely taken over the Patreon. I know Patreon is more of a legit non-porn <laughs> version of, uh, of, of whatever that is, like getting people to pay you for doing whatever the fuck you, you were going to do for free anyway. So but, that, uh, that, uh, that address is onlyfans.com forward slash good movie Monday. <laughs> um, and as I was saying, we've uploaded audio to our podcast stream as well. So those videos that we did with those filmmakers is also available in audio. Wherever you get your podcast from, might be easier for you to listen to on the way to or from work. Um, and that way you don't have to look at us. Well, that's right. But if you do want to look at this, uh, YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram is where you'll do yeah. that. Uh, on, or on the OnlyFans version, we're dressed as French maids. Ah, <laughs> uh, Ben. There's, there's some more taint. There's some taint tapping. You yeah. remember that from a couple of weeks ago? The old taint tap. <laughs> that's OnlyFans. Plug something else. Letterboxd. <laughs> Letterboxd. <laughs> there's no taint tapping on Letterboxd. <laughs> Just be warned ahead of time. But we do have a Letterboxd account. It's a Letterboxd without the E at the the second. <laughs> third. Third E. <laughs> ben could count and spell. Do you wonder how many more, more patrons they would have if they actually spelled it correctly? Spelled it correctly, yeah. <laughs> if Letterboxd was even an actual fucking word. Oh, I wonder if anyone's I mean, snapped is, up that website. But the it's actual not. Letterboxd. The actual com. Letterboxd, yeah. They probably have it. Mm. If they're smart, they've got it. Yeah. And it just redirects. But it is, but... We do, it is a movie listing site, basically, and review site, uh, and we list every film that we talk about on the show, so you can go back later and have a look at it and go, ah, yeah, that sounded interesting, I might check that out (laughs) sometime in the next 20 years. (laughs) And if you like the sound of us, we're on TikTok, so look at us, multimedia mavericks, mate, or just a couple of dickheads. Yeah, we do it all. We are on everything. Patreon, OnlyFans, TikTok, Instagram, Twitter, Pornhub, (laughs) Spankbang. Chatterbait. Yeah. (laughs) Now that would be a facet. We should definitely, (laughs) we should definitely, uh, could you... (laughs) Could you imagine us like broadcasting the show live on Chatterbait, <laughs> and the and the token sounds go all the way through, and because we'd have to be strapped up to some kind of vibrational device. Well, who's going to wear it? Yeah, 
No, we both wear it. Okay. We both wear one, and it's hooked up, and every time somebody donates, the both of us are just like, <laughs> Welcome. Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> Hey, this is Jarrett and welcome to PE class. Now, if I'm sounding a little hoarse, that is because I have just survived four days of Monster Fest. There is six days to go, but being Monday, this is the Sabbath of Monster Fest. This is the day of rest. So if I don't sound great, it's not that I'm not enthusiastic, it's just I'm a little worse for wear. So let's get into this week's releases. First up, Universal Sony have Infinite coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. This, of course, is from the Paramount catalog, and it was one of Paramount Plus's launch titles. And that was only a few months ago, so it's good to know that even though these films are going digital, that Paramount are still going to do physical releases of these bigger key titles. That's the one with Mark Wahlberg, if you haven't seen it. Uh, well, you can check it out on Home Entertainment now. Then there's Stillwater coming out with Matt Damon. This is like a slow burn version of Taken Meets. Uh, Prisoners. It's very slow, but it's super engaging. I enjoyed it. It's coming out on Blu-ray and DVD. Then weeks after the Blu-ray and DVD release, finally coming out in 4K this week is Nia DaCosta's Candyman. Again, I really enjoyed this one. It does take into account the legacy of Candyman and uh, the events that took place in Bernard Rose's Candyman as well. I'm looking forward to checking out the special features on this 4K Ultra HD release. It's got Atmos and it has Dolby Vision also. Then some classic titles that are coming out via Universal Sony include the Karate Kid trilogy on 4K Ultra HD. That's right, they have released the first film before, but this is the first time that two and three have been released, so you're gonna have to rebuy one to get two and three, and I'm cool with that. I've already flipped my one in order to get this box set, and I'm kind of glad that it doesn't have the next Karate Kid or that Karate Kid remake with Will Smith's kid in it. Then another legacy title from the Universal Pictures catalog is Universal Classic Monsters Icons of Horror Collection. Now this is got four features in it. It's got Dracula, the Wolfman, the Invisible Man, and Frankenstein. Now it is 4K only. There is no Blu-ray component with this, but that's fine because Universal have put all the special features on the 4K discs as well as the feature. Then also another classic title coming out via Universal Sony from the Studio Canal catalog is Francis Ford Coppola's The Outsiders, and it contains both cuts of the film, the theatrical and the complete novel, plus a bunch of special features also. Then David Lynch's Mahon Drive is getting a 4K release from Studio Canal. Of course, this 4K Master has been floating around for a while. The Blu-ray was taken from the 4K Master, but this has Dolby Vision and HDR. So yeah, it's probably worth upgrading if you're a Lynch fan. And I mean, this is a wonder to look at. Um, not necessarily super cohesive story-wise, but that's David Lynch for you. Then Umbrella have a heap of releases coming out this week. First up, they've got Brian Trenchard-Smith's Man from Hong Kong. Now this has been released on Blu-ray before about five years ago, but Umbrella are re-releasing as part of their Ozploitation Classics line, and it does have some new special features on there, as well as a limited edition CD soundtrack. And of course, being Ozploitation Classics, you'll get a slipcase too. Then Fred Skepsi's 1976 film, The Devil's Playground, is coming out on Blu-ray as part of the Sunbird screen series. The last one I want to mention is the second volume in Umbrella's all-star comedy Capers, which are double features that they've put together and this release has Stir Crazy and Hanky Panky on it, so definitely going to pick that one up. Then lastly, Imprint have a bunch of releases. I have covered these before in the news some time ago, but I will let you know. But they're releasing Let's Scare Jessica to Death, The Gift, Stir of Echoes, Body Parts, and The Medusa Touch, all on Blu-ray. And of course, being Imprint, they'll have special features, slipcases, and they are limited. Anyway, that's it for me for this week. Until next time, stay physical.
All right, mate, crunch time. Tell me, what's a, what's a film that you've discovered recently? Well, a couple of weeks ago on the show, I did mention that I had been down to Mornington mm. to visit uh, Dead End DVD. And one of the one of the Blu-rays I picked up from there was this was a it's an indicative release of a film called Cash on Demand mm. from 1961. It is a and it was it was originally released as part of one of Indicator's Hammer Horror box sets, and they have since that box set is well and truly out of print, and but they've actually started releasing the films separately, yep. probably without a booklet or some. Something like that, that it's going to niggle and annoy me for the rest of my life that I don't have the, the, the good version. But I did pick up this DVD called Cash on Demand, Blu-ray, sorry. And uh, it is absolutely fantastic. It is a, it's a hammer, it's a odd kind of hammer crime film. I didn't really realize that Hammer had done mm. things other than horror. Yep. But they, they dip their fingers in like, like all film studios. They were just out to try and make money. And any genre that seemed to be popular, obviously, they, they got into it. I'm looking forward to checking out some Hammer romances uh, <laughs> down the track when that box set comes out. Uh, but this one is from 1961, directed by this guy, Quentin Lawrence, who did a lot of TV stuff, including some of my favorite, kind of like The Baron. Mm. The, hey, Baron. Every episode is, <laughs> he gets a phone call. Hey, Baron, I've got a line on some dodgy antiques. I'll meet you down the docks. <laughs> And then he gets to the docks and the guy's been killed. And then the episode is off. Every episode <laughs> of The Baron. It's amazing. Like he's an antique. He's an antique dealer who solves crime in his spare time. Only the British could come up with this as a primetime TV show. But anyway, <laughs> this guy directed episodes of that. Um, but stars Peter Cushing uh, as he's a like a... It's a almost like a Christmas Carol type movie, but he's a bank manager and he's a bit of an asshole. Mm. Um, he's very uh, prim and proper, and he treats his staff as slaves. He's not interested in their personal lives. He is only interested in perfection. He's a bit of a he's a you know he's, he's not a particularly nice person to work for, and they all, they don't particularly like him. And this movie is set at Christmas time, and they're kind of they're planning the staff party and stuff, which he is couldn't care less about and doesn't want them to discuss on work time and all this kind of stuff. He's just a real kind of difficult kind of character to work for. Mm. And then um, they get a visit one day from this guy, Andre, played by Andre Morel, who if you're a kind of a, if you're a Peter Cushing mm. kind of fan, you'll know that the year prior to this, Peter Cushing and Andre Morel were in uh, Sherlock Holmes and the Hand of the Baskervilles with mm -hmm. Peter Cushing being Sherlock Holmes and Andre Morel was Dr. Watson. But in this one, he comes in and he pretends to be, he gets the assistant manager to let him straight back into the manager's office. And then he basically says that he's been sent there by head office, the insurance company from head office that makes sure the banks are all safe and secure and that no one can you know steal any money. And they buy it hook, line and sinker. And no one does any checks or anything like that. But then as the movie unfolds, realize that he's actually, he's pulled a kind of friends of Eddie Coyle mm -hmm. and he convinces Peter Cushing that he's, he's there to rob the bank and he's got hold of his wife and, and child. And if he doesn't like light a cigarette or make certain marks in the window um, at certain times, his, his family are going to be killed. Right. And then basically gets Peter Cushing to help him mm. rob the bank. It is... It's a it's a really super tense uh, kind of movie, and the, and it do, like he does as the movie goes on. The reason I say it's kind of like a Christmas Carol is because he does come to appreciate his staff. Like they kind they really 
when you know things come to a head, they really help him out. Yeah, right. Um, but it is a it is a real a fascinating movie. Excellently, like excellently shot, well paced. It is very tense. You're on the edge of your seat the whole time. And Andre Morel is like Peter Cushing is great, but Peter Cushing playing an asshole, he's great at it. But he's you. You can't. You, he's so unlikable. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Andre Morel, who is the real villain of this film, he's got a twinkle in his eye the whole time, and he is incredibly likable. Mm. And even though he is the villain, you still find yourself almost rooting for him more than Peter Cushing. Even yep. though, even though, and as the film goes, Peter Cushing unravels dramatically. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, it is a fascinating movie. Highly recommended. It. it is available, as I said, on Blu-ray. Through um, through indicator, and you can probably I, I think I bought his last copy, but I'm sure he can get more copies in if you ask him to at Dead End DVD. Well, speaking of Dead End DVD, um, one movie I spoke about a few weeks ago on our Killer Toys episode was Benny Loves You, and I noticed he had that there, yeah. and that's a recent film discovery. Like it came from nowhere. I just looked up Killer Toy movies, saw it was new, and watched it, and it's amazing. So there's one I just wanted to throw out there. But you know, the movies I discover all the time are Aussie ones. Like I. My like fetish almost is like going back watching like old Aussie movies I've never heard of before. It's yeah. like it's a real thing I'd love to do. Simone Buchanan as a twelve year old kid. I'm in. That <laughs> yeah. sounds that sounds dirty. I didn't mean it that way. I just meant she made lots of good movies as so a kid. There are so many that I discovered. Like um last year I discovered Summerfield for the first time and that is fantastic. Last of the Knuckle Men, I hadn't heard of that yeah. before. Oh, you never heard of it? I had not. Like I wow. maybe have seen stills from it. But that was a ripper. Like, yeah. I really love that one. But I'm going to stop and talk about A Dangerous Summer from 1982, which is the most recent one I stumbled across, starring American Tom Skerritt. You've got James Mason and Wendy Hughes is in there. And there's also a few smaller you know, roles from Ray Barrett and uh, Wandon Valley's own Dr. Terence Elliott, <laughs> Shane Porteous. <laughs> that, was great. Shane Porteous. that was great to see him in. You can always judge the age of a movie by the size of Shane Porteous's nose or the, and the redness of it. <laughs> or the, the shade of his hair. hair yeah. <laughs> how white are you? How white has it gone? Again, I, I don't know how I missed this one, but you know, as I tend to do, I just sort of went down a bit of a rabbit hole and, and I went and purchased this one on eBay once I discovered it. And... Apparently, according to, to Facebook, um, it was suggested to me that this movie was shit. And oh. I disagree. I really liked it a lot. Yeah, that fuck you, Facebook, or whatever you're going to be called now. <laughs> it, I mean, this is a movie that takes place in the Blue Mountains during a bushfire, and Tom Skerritt plays an, an architect sort of developer on a resort. Um, that There's a big sort of dodgy insurance scheme going on in, in the in the boardrooms in Sydney. Uh, so it's a, it's a movie about corruption and, and cor- at a corporate level and it, this guy just finds himself mixed up in a deadly cover-up. But it's pretty good stuff. Skerritt is really good in it. I like seeing him in this sort of, um, in an Australian film. He had just come off really alien, not that. I've got to say, I always find it, I like watching Tom young Tom Skerritt in things because yeah. I'm so used to him being like old or middle-aged. Yeah, Because yeah. like, Tom Skerritt, I feel like, was one of those guys that when he turned 40, he immediately basically turned 60. Yeah, that's right. Like, he just always but like, he was, picket fences and stuff. But and, he was teetering on 40 for a long time. For, yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. Uh, Wendy Hughes is good in it too. She plays like an insurance investigator. And, um, and what I love about this film, and this is a massive spoiler, but look, it's not going to ruin the movie for you, but um, if you don't want to know well, you know, anything, block your ears. They kill her off pretty quickly. And, oh, okay. you know... It, 
That's not a, if they kill her off quickly, it's not a spoiler. Yeah, but like she was a star. Like, <laughs> yeah. you know, so they killed the star fairly early on. But I like that it gave the film a little bit more sort of gravitas. And um, anyway, it was originally supposed to be directed by Brian Chanchard Smith, which most early Aussie films were supposed to be directed by Brian Chanchard Smith. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think he shot most of the bushfire sequences in it. Um, but for one reason or another, um, he stepped off. I think Bruce Beresford was then attached at, at one point. And it ultimately went to Quentin Masters, who also made Midnight Spares. And a right. fantastic movie um, with like Bruce all these, I was going to say, all these movies that you've mentioned so far have appeared, they were released by Roadshow <laughs> Home Video. <laughs> and I've got them as those Roadshow are. Oh, delicious, mate. Uh, VHS tapes. But this guy, Quentin Masters, made two Aussie films and then like two American films. And one of them was um, Thun, Thumb Tripping with uh, Bruce Dern and Meg Foster. Yes, yeah, that, that's a great film. Yeah, that, uh, <laughs> and it's the and what's his name too? It's the um, uh, Captain Stubing. Is it Captain Stubing? Or the, I can't remember if it's it's either Captain Stubing or it's um, the desk sergeant from Hill Street Blues, whatever his name is. But <laughs> one of them are like this sleazy. It plays a sleazy truck driver yep. who who uh, basically lures poor Meg Foster into prostitution. And it's it's so weird because Meg Foster is so young in it, yet she still has like Meg, that Meg Foster face yep. and those incredibly piercing pale blue eyes. It's quite. I, I was like, I just don't know how you could do it. What I want to know is how I knew about thumb tripping, but not Dangerous Summer. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but I definitely recommend it. I wouldn't call this one exceptional, but I just think it's genuinely good. It's a whodunit. A uh, little bit predictable, I'll give it that, but um, the atmosphere just has me sold on it. And I, yeah, I just love these Aussie films from the 70s and 80s. They're great. How's it going, everybody? It's Guillermo here again from ScreenRealm.com, Australia's favorite entertainment website covering all things movies and television. Once again, here to tell you a little bit about what we've covered on the website in the past week, kicking off with Nicolas Cage playing Dracula. That's right, in a role that really should have been ages ago, although he did dabble with vampirism in 1989 flick Vampire's Kiss, the Cage has signed up to play the Transylvanian Count in a Universal Pictures monster movie titled Renfield. The film will be following Dracula's titular acolyte and henchman R.M. Renfield to be played by Nicholas Hoult. Both Dracula and Renfield originated in Bram Stoker's 1897 gothic horror novel Dracula, which depicted Renfield as a mental asylum patient who serves Dracula in the hope that the vampire will grant him immortality. Set to direct the film, which is being described as a modern-day adventure story that is comedic in tone, is the Tomorrow War and the Lego Batman movie Helmer Chris McKay. The screenplay comes from Ryan Ridley, whose primarily television credits include Rick and Morty, Community and Invincible. The Walking Dead and Invincible executive producer Robert Kirkman came up with the original story and will be on board as producer. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom and The Impossible director J.A. Bayona will be directing a Netflix film about a real-life 1972 plane crash disaster. Titled Society of the Snow, the film will be based on the book of the same name by Pablo Viersi and will tell the tragic true story of Uruguayan Air Force Flight 571. Carrying a rugby team to Chile, the flight was met with poor weather while flying over the Andes Mountains and catastrophically crashed in a glacier in the heart of the precarious and isolated mountain range. Of the 45 passengers, 3 crew members and 8 passengers died immediately. Over the next 72 days, 72 days, those that had survived the initial crash were subject to starvation, extreme weather in a harsh environment, including an avalanche, and some were forced to resort to cannibalism. 
You may remember that this story was taken to the screen by director Frank Marshall back in 1993 with an Ethan Hawke starring film called Alive. Bayona, whose directorial credits also include The Orphanage and A Monster Calls, will be writing the screenplay with Bernat Villaplana, Jay Marquez and Nicolas Casariego. And quite the cast is coming together for the next film for Scott Cooper, known for Crazy Heart, Out of the Furnace, Black Mass, Hostiles and Antlers. Scott Cooper is reuniting with Hostiles star Christian Bale for this one, a period gothic thriller heading to Netflix. The film is based on a 2006 book of the same name by author Louis Bayard following a criminal case in the renowned US military academy at West Point in 1830. Christian Bale will be playing a detective who looks into a series of murders that take place. His investigation leads him into the underground secret world at this military school and at the center of the case is a cadet named Edgar Allan Poe to be played by Harry Melling, whose credits include The Queen's Gambit and the Harry Potter franchise. Quite an ensemble also in the cast, Gillian Anderson, Robert Duvall, Val, Timothy Spall, Lucy Boynton, Charlotte Gainsbourg, Toby Jones, and a number of others. This is shaping up to be a big one for Netflix. The streaming giant paid a whopping $55 million to get this one. The Pale Blue Eye, no release date as of yet. This past week, I also reviewed new Disney animated film Encanto, had some minor qualms with it, but with its beautiful messages, strong characterization, lovely animation, and wonderful music, Encanto should prove to be a heartwarming, emotional adventure to please audiences of all ages. Go to Screen Realm, check out my complete review. Encanto is now showing in cinemas. Thanks so much for having me, everybody. Hope everyone's doing well out there. Catch you next week.
Sound of Fear by Stefano Mainetti from the soundtrack to Zombie 3. How good's that, Ben? I think that was your choice. Yeah, and it's a it's a banger of a track, and it, in the movie, like, it gets you pumped. What better song to segue to Wormwood Apocalypse, you know, given that it's a zombie movie? A zombie, yeah. <laughs> that's, that's, well, that's why I chose it, man. And what a great film to be closing Monster Fest with. Um, I was a massive, massive fan of the first one. It caught me completely off guard. I avoided it for a long time because of all the hype, and when I finally put that Blu-ray on, it hit me like a Mack truck. Like I was there, I was there for the original hype, mate. (laughs) I saw it at one of its early screenings at Fantastic Fest with uh, the two uh, Roche Turner brothers in attendance, and they came out in singlets and holding up VBs. (laughs) It was uh, an amazing. Well, Amazing screen. Tell you what, um, I recently got to spend some time talking with uh, Kia Roche Turner. Um, yeah, what a guy! And um, he's going to talk all about Wormwood Apocalypse. As I said, it's at Monster Fest. Um, enjoy this, and we'll catch you on the other side. G'day, Kia. Pleasure to be chatting with you, mate. How the hell are you? I'm okay, man. I'm okay. Any any sort of period of time where I get to release a film is a good period of time. So I'm in a pretty good mood. Fucking the reviews are going okay. It screened well at Sydney um, Film Festival, screened well at Brisbane. I, I cannot complain. You know, not a single bad review. I want to I start by asking you if um, you've been keeping up with the whole um, Matt Doran stuff with Adele. No, I read a headline. Tell me what's going on with that. Oh, well, he, he um, flew all the way to London to interview her um, and then revealed that he hadn't listened to her album. And so he lost... Channel 7, a million dollar contract with the, the studio. Um, but I wanted to preface this conversation by saying that I haven't seen Wormwood Apocalypse yet. That's all right. I'm, Have you I'm, seen number I'm, one? Oh, hell yeah. Absolutely. It's just I a continuation a, thereof. You know, if you've seen I, Evil Dead 1, you've seen Evil Dead 2, kind of. You know? <laughs> I, I'm not I Adele. I don't give a fuck, Glenn. I'm just happy to talk to you. I owned a video store for several years and had a Wormwood poster behind my counter for at least two or three years. Wow. Yeah, so absolutely. That's, that's fine. That's fine. And, and like, I'm sure you'll like the sequel. Like, um, if you're a Wormwood fan, yeah, it's, it's sort of bigger. It's got big clanging balls that the other one didn't have. Um, it's not quite as funny, but it makes up for it. it okay, do you know what it is? It's... Um, Mad Max 1 and Mad Max 2. Mad Max 1 is kind of creakier but kind of more fun and it sets up the whole world. Mad Max 2 is just like fucking pedal to the metal. It yeah. just does not fuck around from like frame. It's basically one long truck chase, you know, and that's <laughs> it, it's kind of similar with, 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 with our thing, you know. So I'm sure you'll love it once you see it. Well, you've, you've kind of covered already a, a couple of my questions, which is awesome, but like I was going to go in by saying, well, you know, why the fuck should I see this movie? But you've answered that question by comparing it to sort of the Mad Max films. I'm on board. I remember the the first movie being compared with sort of a Mad Max crossed with Dawn of the Dead. I think that was even on the DVD. Yes. Um, yeah. Is that a good way to describe this one too? Yes. Um, <laughs> um, so, so the first one is like Mad Max 1 crossed with Dawn of the Dead. Um and to, 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 to be clear, it, it's, it's, it's the Ramiro Dawn of the Dead. You know, the Snyder Dawn of the Dead is like a $45 million film. It's a different beast. But I really wanted, when I made Wormwood, I, I didn't mind that it was a bit gritty and a little bit of a throwback to, you know, the old kind of um, 70s, you know, 
exploitation films. I really wanted it to feel like, you know, Evil Dead 2 with slightly better lighting. Um, and actually, Evil Dead 2 was pretty well lit, so I don't know what I'm talking about. Um, <laughs> but this one, this one's just a bit more pro. So this would be Mad Max 2 crossed with Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, um, awesome. With a cyborg zombie thrown in just for good measure. I remember shortly after the first movie came out, there was there was buzz or talk about a sequel even back then. And I think you even had maybe a, a TV series in mind uh, at one point. Like how, I mean, when did the sequel come to you? Was it before the first one even happened? Did you have this universe in mind or, you know, where did the origins of this come from? It always wanted to be like a riffable franchise where we could just sort of riff endlessly for as long as people will continue to allow us to make these movies. Like, you know, world building is a bit of a cliche, but that's exactly what we wanted to do because I grew up watching Star Wars and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I love the world of Evil Dead. I love the world um, that, you know, George Miller set up with, with, with Apocalypse. And quite frankly, we just got the shits with waiting for him to make another film. So we thought, oh, well, let's just shoot one in our backyard and Wormwood happened. Um, the, the, so we always wanted a sequel. Ironically, the opening scene in Wormwood Apocalypse that you will see, like the, it's, it's the post-title scene. So the title comes up and then we open with sort of this man alone in a, a electrified sort of enclosure with a fence around it and all these zombies trying to get in and he's got a zombie... Uh, attached to his barbecue that like runs his barbecue. He's got like a zombie tied up to a stake that he uses for boxing practice. So the boxing, you know, the zombies oh. boxing him. It's got like a, um, it's got a uh, like a bird cage around its head so it doesn't bite him, and he just beats the shit out of it every day. That's how he exercises. Um, nice. So that scene was written twelve years ago. That's the first thing we wrote for Wormwood. So originally, I don't know if you've seen the seven minute proof of concept that we did for Wormwood, I think in 2010 now. So we released like this little seven minute sort of proof of concept thing just on YouTube. Mm -hmm. um, that was originally gonna be the opening scene for the film. And we were gonna start a year into the apocalypse, like straight into Mad Max world. Mm -hmm. But then as we kind of developed it and kind of started setting up, you know, Wormwood Road of the Dead, we realized really we should tell the origin story, you know, more like how Mad Max, you know, sets up Max Rokotansky with his family and that and you sort of he moves into the wilderness of, of the apocalypse and so that's what we ended up doing and so now like seven years later we finally got to shoot like the original film that we kind of wanted to make so it's kind of it's it's a really nice way it's really circular sort of way to to, to get to the film we did have a tv series planned um after we made the first one I was kind of like I just wanted to try television. Like I wanted to make, but like it had to be good. It's like, look, mm -hmm. if we can't make Breaking Bad with zombies, like what the fuck's the point? So mm -hmm. if we can't make like the greatest ever Australian zombie television series, don't want to do it. And, you know, we sort of, we, we wrote, like we wrote the pilot and we wrote a very detailed pitch Bible that's like that thick. It's like the best document I've ever made. And we just sort of shopped it around. We went over to LA, we talked to a bunch of different companies and I realised very quickly that A, the television world is very hard to crack and mm. B, we weren't going to get a budget that, that I was confident with um, to be able to make it the best ever. But I knew that if we made a film, I'd knock it out of the park. And so we just yeah. went back to the idea of making a feature and I'm really glad we did because, you know, it, it, you get to the end of a thing and you kind of know if it kicks ass or not. Like, 
you know, the public will decide whether they like it and whether it's going to make money and, you know, the reviewers will decide how good it is. But really, all that stuff doesn't really fucking matter because I love it. I love the film. I'm just looking at mm. I've seen it 150 times now and I'm like, this is fine. There's nothing wrong with it, you know? And, like, if you, if you, if you make a film that you're proud of, that's just that's like you're 80% there, you know? So I'm, I'm pretty happy with, with what we've done, you know? Awesome. If I can ask a typical sort of journo style question for a moment, um, what were some like valuable lessons you took away from the first film or even sort of Necrotronic and applied to this one or maybe even avoided? Um, always make sure the catering is good. Like we mm-hmm. had just some serious mutinies on our hands because we're handing out way too many shitty sausage sandwiches and just giving somebody a handful of chocolate and going oh just deal with that for you know that's your food for the next 12 hours and like that's not good catering has to be good um the the lesson that i learned from the first one was i thought the first one was amateur hour i thought oh like we'll just make a bunch of shit with our mates and then we'll be pros Mm -hmm. and what i realized having made necrotronic was oh, no, we got it right the first time. Like, really, it should, every film should feel like a bunch of friends getting together. It should feel like amateur hour. Um, It should feel like people having fun and having a great time. And the film is the priority rather than, you know, the professionalism of it all. You know, like, Necrotronic was, you know, a real splash in the face for me because it was my first studio film. And I got about halfway through it just going, how in the name of God does Nolan do it? Like, how does he make like personal visionary films when you've got like literally seven people helping you make every single creative decision that you make. Mm. Um, Because, you know, I I think to make something pure, there has to be a singular vision. There just has to be. And the more money, the less singular the vision. And so what I'm trying to do now um, moving forward from Wormwood Apocalypse is to try and find a happy medium. With Wormwood, with Wormwood Apocalypse, like we went back to kind of crazy days of, you know, like low budget filmmaking, um, except, you know, this time we knew a hell of a lot more. We had more money so that it was, you know, properly pro. We had Blake Northfield who's made four films and he came in and just made sure everything was schmick and that the catering was good. That was important. Um, but I, I'd love to be able to step it up and, and make something with a sort of similar budget to Necrotronic, but also make it with that DIY film school approach um, and, and try to have that singular vision again. I don't know what the secret is, but it's got to be out there because I see these amazing filmmakers like, um, yeah, like Paul Thomas Anderson and Scorsese and stuff. They've worked it out. I don't know what the sequel, I don't know what the secret is, but there's got to be a way to, to have a singular vision and to have a little bit more money. <laughs> that'd, be, that'd be fun, you know. The, um, our, the first film just sort of blew up internationally and did that catch you off guard? And I'm wondering if the weight of expectation from horror fans all around the world affected you creatively. Like, you know, did you have a wider audience in mind when you are making the movie or did you just play it to the Aussie oh, you, you always hope that you're going to make like a classic and, you know, like in my head, I'm like, oh, I'm going to be the Australian Scorsese. And, you know, very quickly in the business, you realise, no, 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 I'm going to be Keogh Turner, whatever that means. You know, Scorsese's already got that wrapped up. Um, uh, like, honestly, like we would have been happy to just release Wormwood One on YouTube and just go about our business, um, you know. Um, but it, 
sold to a distributor and it did well and we got you know number one on itunes for a while and you know we got really decent reviews from like the hollywood reporter and variety and like time magazine and stuff so that means we won the low budget lottery like um <laughs> i think we just had a good idea that and it was well rendered and um you know yeah the weight of expectation is difficult but i've i've really learned that you know I mean, the only expectation you have to meet is your own, you know, as long as you like your film, chances are there'll be a pocket of people who like it too. It just really depends on how big that pocket is, you know? Yeah. Do those people um, immediately sort of come up to you asking you about a third chapter after they've seen the second one? Yeah. Heaps of people are like, so when's three coming out? <laughs> and that's the funny thing with the film. You spend like two and a half years or like four years writing it, two and a half years making it. You break your butt. And the first question is, when's the next one? You know what I mean? I'm like, oh, Jesus, give me a break. Like, let me, <laughs> let me, let, let the wounds heal from the last one, man. Um, but it like, means you're doing something right. It, it must. But to be honest with you, um, I, I, yeah, I, I'm rearing to go, man. I'd love to, I'd love to make Wormwood 3. You know, I've already, I've already started jotting down ideas. I could write this script like pretty quick. Um, yeah, I'd love to keep doing it. You know, like I said, as long as they keep letting me do it, I'll do it, you know. I'll be there. I'll be there for sure. Like, you know, front row center for sure. I think you're going to like this one, man. It's a classic. It's a real classic genre meat grinder of a film. And it's, you know, we don't, there's not too many Aussie evil deads, you know? And I, I, I think, I think this one's pretty good. I think anybody who loves genre will just look at this and go, okay, yeah, well done. You know, the whole, the whole third act is just like, just balls to the wall i'm really happy with it you know it's just got just constant action and it's not just action for the sake of it like there really is quite um you know it's got peaks and valleys it's got um you know it's sort of constantly inventive and it's low budget as fuck like it's not you know you couldn't put it up there with like you know avengers end game <laughs> but the whole point of this is to have the opposite of Avengers Endgame as an option for an audience. You know, people who are sick of seeing the world explode can just watch a little Australian zombie's head explode, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I, I don't say yourself short because I think even just the first film alone was like of international standard. Like the quality was exceptional for a low-budget film. So I'm really psyched for this one, that's for sure. Such a nice thing to hear. It's so funny too because we just shot it on like five days and stuff. Like literally like a big chunk of that was shot in my mum's backyard. Like, it still blows my mind that people are like, yeah, it's it's of a standard that's pretty... Like a couple a couple of years ago, I was presenting some um, online content for Scarefest in Kentucky, and I was I was in, uh, promoting Aussie horror films to them, and Wormwood is the one that stuck with them. Wormwood and Cargo are the two that they just said, these are some, some of the best horror that we've ever seen. So, you know, it resonates. Cargo, Cargo is like, it's just a... It's a beautiful film, and it's got like like the emotional impact of it is just gorgeous and Wormwood, they're kind of opposites. It'd actually be a really good double bill, Cargo and, um, and Wormwood. Wormwood's like, you know, this kind of splatterfest. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's weird though, we have a legitimate following in Texas. Um, yeah. And, and um, they, they're always writing in saying how they love it and how shit the guns look. They're just like, God damn, you make a hell of a zombie film, but you can't make a gun for shit, man. Those guns are fake as fuck. Um, and, and they are, you know, because we just carved them out of wood. Yeah. <laughs> it's um, bad well, taste time, man. We literally carved them out of wood and painted them black, you know. Oh, man. Our, our time is fleeting. I, wanna, I want you to indulge me just for a moment. Um, 
we're the same age and we grew up in an incredible moment of, you know, movies and video stores. What were the kind of movies you were renting from a video store at a young age? Um, I used to go to, um, what was it called? There was Video Shift in Balmain, which I adored um, because they're just a hell of a video store. But there was a little video store on Broadway and I can't remember the name of it. It's not Video Manor, it's something else. But it was run by a guy who looked exactly like... um, uh, who's the director? Alan Parker. He just looked like yep. Alan Parker, like a grumpy Alan Parker. And I'd go <laughs> down there looking for just crazy shit. Like I'd go down, obviously looking for the the Evil Deads and you know, like all of that kind of stuff, and trying to find some earlier Dario Argento. But I'd go down and ask if he had Malinoche, the early black and white Gus Van Sant, like this little sixteen year old film nerd. And like <laughs> that's when he noticed me. He looked up and like raised an eyebrow. He's like Malinoche. How do you know about that? I'm like I read shit, man. So I was just always looking for you know, like anything you know, Fellini, whatever. Ever. The thing that I loved about video stores more than anything, though, is you'd go to like Blockbuster and stuff and you'd have Goodfellas and Taxi Driver and whatnot, but you had to go and search for Mean Streets. You know, like you couldn't find like early Scorsese, like who's that knocking at my door, like all that kind of stuff. Like um, that was the fun stuff, having to actually hunt shit down. Like no video store had New York, New York. Like you had to go to Video Shift for that. And they had the sections in, you know, you go through director by director. And, you know, it's like it was actually kind of hard to find Last Temptation of Christ and all that kind of stuff. Like, mm. um, but, you know, you'd, you'd hear about this film called Deep Red and you'd go rent that. Like some, you'd get a friend's mum to rent it for you, you know, like, um, yeah, all that stuff was great. I, I'm getting excited just talking about it, man. I, I spent like literally thousands of hours in video stores, you know. Yeah. You'd, you'd spend a half day, you know, just getting your 10 and even the video store person would just be looking at you going, do you not have a home to go? You've been here for seven <laughs> hours. <laughs> like, You would have loved my store and I had plenty of those customers that just lingered all day. I even, you know, made them comfortable. Want a coffee? Here you go. <laughs> well, there was a point where my local video store just said, look, you have to work here. Like you're here too often. <laughs> and so that was, that was one of my first jobs was a video yeah. store clerk, awesome. of course, you know. Um, oh, but I didn't even ask for the job. He demanded it. He goes, well, you have to work in now. <laughs> it's like you too often. We may as well pay you. Oh, mate. I feel like we're cut from the same cloth. But um, look, I'm legitimately psyched for Apocalypse. I'm really, really eager to see it. And I'm going to hold out for Monster Fest. Uh, no screeners or anything like that. And uh, I just, you know, wish you all the best with it. I hope it really, really takes off, you know, and, and hope there is a number three. Thanks, man. And I'm genuinely interested. Um, like, you've got my email now. Shoot me an email. I mean, if you hate it, don't bother. But, like, if, you, if the, <laughs> like, just tell me what you think. Even, fuck it. Even if you hate it, you know, let me know. I'd love <laughs> to hear your opinion on it. Like, just as a, as a film yeah. critic, I'm very interested, you know, because, um, yeah, I, I'd, I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Consider it done. And, and thank you so much for your time, mate. Welcome to Bonehead Weekly Fun Size. Today, we're going to talk about movie discoveries. These are discoveries that we've made over the past year that maybe not a ton of people have seen, but we highly suggest that we either accidentally found or that no one was really talking about. You want me to go first, Chad? Yeah, go for it, bud. I've got two. So both of mine, I do the review for Scarefest, which means um, it's a weekly thing. So it means I'm always looking for new horror films. The issue is, is that sometimes tough, but God bless Shudder, because there's actually two movies that I saw on Shudder that I think one of them got a pretty good press and then the director is going to go on to do another thing. And it actually scared me. And the other one, I just think it's pretty well made. The first one is Host. If you've not seen Host, it's only about 60 minutes. It's a Shudder exclusive. 
I, it, they shot it during lockdown on Zoom. And the movie is so effective. It's so smart that it's only 60 minutes. I mean, another 10, 15 minutes would have taken it too far. And it made me jump two or three times. It got to me. I thought it was really scary. Once again, you got to subscribe to Shutter. But even if you only want to do it for a month, just for the two, the other one is something called Anything for Jackson. And Anything for Jackson is about this older couple whose daughter is dead and their grandson's dead. And they make a deal with the devil to bring back their grandson and they're not quite sure how they made the deal who they went through what deal they've made and all these it's not it sounds like a comedy it's not it's just how this would go if two older folks like well let's make a deal with the devil or let's go buy a new iphone i don't quite know how it works does that make sense to you too and so they get the iphone deal with the devil and they let in a lot of other demons and by the way none of this works out for anybody so anything for jackson if you get a chance i, I really enjoyed it it's a couple of character actors play the leads whom i don't remember right now from canada check it out anything for jackson chad okay so uh mine also is a horror film and i will admittedly say that it's not a great film but damn did i enjoy the hour and 25 minutes it was on i am talking about bingo hell never heard of it what's it on <laughs> it's, it's on uh it's an amazon original movie so you know you have to have an amazon prime account um it's um it's about these uh old people who live in this neighborhood it's it's being run down uh big corporations are coming in to gentrify it essentially uh but they refuse to give up their homes um and there's their one group activity that they get together with is every every weekend they go and have a bingo match at the at the local town hall city uh, yeah town hall but eventually this demon played by the amazing richard brake and uh reinvent turns the bingo hall into a place to grab people's souls as they win at bingo <laughs> is it a comedy it, it it is played it is a little bit comedy a little bit horror a little bit drama it, sometimes it doesn't mesh well sometimes the, the the plot falls down but every now and then something batshit crazy happens that just pulls you back in um highly recommend checking it out again it's only an hour and 25 minutes it gave me that feeling of just finding one of those uh b b horror films at the at the rental store that you would just pick up and go well i don't know what this is i'm gonna go check it out and it, it was, it was an hour and 25 minutes of fun for me. You know, I, I really am struggling because I didn't get to see much this year. Uh, and, and there were various other things that happened, but well, then just shut thinking, the hell up. We'll end it here. No, Goodbye, yeah, no. That's been I was thinking actually about a movie that, that occasionally I flash back to, and that's not a heavy film. It's nothing like what you are talking about. Uh, but I think as wait, as, hold on. Bingo hell is a heavy film. Mine too are <laughs> kind of heavy, probably yeah, more so than what I'm going to talk about, but. As the father of, of a daughter who's approaching her, her, her teen years and therefore hates me, uh, Mitchell versus the Machines. Um, that was good. Oh, that's, that is a good film. That it, was it, better than you, I thought it would be. Yeah. If you haven't had a chance to see it, basically it's the Machines take over. Basically the iPods take over the, or the iPods. Nobody has an iPod. The iPads and the iPhones take over the world. And the Mitchells are a family that's not perfect. They are a, a very realistic family as far as animated movies go mm -hmm. but they have to fight back and you know it, it's a 
it, it has actually some things to say about parenthood and about growing up and things like that and realizing that there is no such thing as a perfect family. Everybody's screwed up. Everybody's trying hopefully the best that they can, or at least good families do. And it's, it's, it actually is a fun movie that, that, that I've, that, you know, we've watched a couple times and my kids like it, but it, it actually is something that I can watch again with them and it's not unbearable. So if you've not seen Mitchell versus the machines, do check it out. It's a lot of fun. This has been bonehead weekly fun size. As I was mapping out this show, Ben, I was struggling with this block, this particular block, because I was racking my brain um, for another one that was worth talking about. So I thought, fuck it. I just hit Google and went looking for movies that I've never heard of. I love this. Like, is that what you typed into Google? Like, movies <laughs> I have never heard of. And Siri's like, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> it's the typical, you know, late night um, rabbit hole where you click one name, lead to another. And I sort of deliberately went through five steps without thinking so that I'd right. land somewhere that it was unfamiliar. Um, five I... steps? Step into my office. Because <laughs> you're fucking fired. It's seven steps. I found one that I can't believe I hadn't heard of. I'm disappointed that I hadn't heard of, especially considering that it was right under my nose and I really should have I should have found this one before our Disney episode. Um, anyway. It was produced by the magical world of Disney, but it's very theatrical, and it's the fantastic 1973 film Super Dad, starring Bob Crane, Kurt Russell, and Kathleen Cody, plus some others that I'll mention in a moment. But seriously, what what a movie. I tell you, I was like a little boy on the couch watching this one. <laughs> like I, When you mentioned this to me yeah. and sent me the link, I was like, I still haven't heard, I haven't heard of this. And I looked at the poster, and I'm like, this is not helping with my <laughs> desire to watch the film. <laughs> I tell you, Bob Crane plays an over, overprotective dad to a teenage daughter, and she's in her late teens. And you know, he completely hates her circle of friends, you know, because they're all sort of delinquents and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they're all into that that beach party surf culture yeah. that was so big, you know, back then. Um, and one day, he sees a relationship counselor on the TV suggesting that the best way for parents to bond with their kids was to actually go out and get involved with the kids, right? So he tries to be the cool dad and he hangs out with them wherever they go. You know, he's there at the beach and there he is, you know, with a towel right next to them and trying to you know, get away with all the cool lingo. And this is just funny. Like, it's just absolutely yeah. hilarious. It plays out <laughs> like I imagined a modern John Candy movie would play out like. You know, like I, I got a sense of summer rental and great outdoors, you know. I was going to say, for me, it feels like you're talking about uh, the original She's Out of Control with Tony Dancer. <laughs> Remake? <laughs> um, but oh, look, obviously, you know, he eventually pushes her away because of what he's doing. And then the story really switches gears because she does get involved with the wrong crowd and he comes to realise that her friends were probably the better friends in the end. They were just kids being kids. Yeah. Um, but holy shit, like where has this film been my whole life? I am going to watch it again, you know, soon. Um, my favourite part is toward the, towards the beginning as they're driving through the suburbs and this is how you know it's a Disney film because they're driving in their car singing a song. And... <laughs> But it's great because like, one of them's got a guitar and the other's are bopping along and the sing and the song. And Kurt Russell... Uh, please tell me it's Bob Crane who's driving is the one no, also the one playing the guitar. The no, he's on the side, uh, sidewalk going, you delinquents. <laughs> but Kurt Russell's lying on a surfboard that's hanging out the window and you think to yourself, you could die. You, like, that's dangerous, you know, but yeah. it's the 60s, man, or the 70s. And he's got his arms behind his head and he's just singing he's this just song. A, was it a green screen? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally. <laughs> Whatever screen they had back then, it was, it was probably rear projection. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but, oh, man, I love this film. And 
I said there were some other people in this, and two of his best friends, this is before they were stars, Bruno Kirby. Yeah, right. Plays well. like the real sort of smart ass um, jokester that, that just keeps getting fired from one job and gets picking up another one, getting fired, picking up, and that becomes an ongoing joke. But right. he's so excited to have each new job, you know? <laughs> and he doesn't know where he's going wrong. And it's the fact that he keeps stealing their car so they can go surfing. <laughs> um, and then the other friend who's like the real sort of beach coma with the, the wispy blonde hair is Egg Begley Jr. Yeah, right. As a gangly teenager. And that just blew my mind. And um, I, yeah, I want everybody, if they can, find Super Dad. Watch it. Is it on Disney Plus? In accordance with my disappointment of Disney Plus, it is not. Not. Nope, it is not there. But I, I think I found this on YouTube and just rented it. I do like renting from YouTube. I don't know why. It's just easy. I think you do it a lot. I do. It's do easy. You, are you? I, I feel good about spending money on movies. But do you? Are you a like YouTube Red member or they whatever? Don't have it is? that anymore. It's just YouTube now. Uh, but there is, isn't there? There is a way that you can pay so you premium. don't get the ads. Premium. Yeah, YouTube Premium. Are you well, a YouTube Premium subscriber? I'm not. But if you just rent a film, you don't get ads. Right. Yeah, yeah of course. You got the yeah. choice of HD or, or SD, and I always go the HD. And it's just easy because I can just search for a movie. There it is. It automatically debits my card. I'm happy. Um, and like I said, like you and I are in a privileged position where we do get a lot of freebies. You know, we yes. get a lot of discs sent to us. So when we get to pay for things... You can never have enough freebies sent to you. Uh, any distributors listening <laughs> would welcome any more freebies you would like to send but out. We, we also go to screenings, right? So yes. y- we lose touch with the fact that people should be paying for movies. And so I feel good paying. And I spend probably $15 a week on renting movies. Right. Know, just... It's like, right. it's like going to the video store. Exactly. You go every week, you get five weeklies for five bucks. Oh, what a sad what a sad comparison that is. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I think YouTube should do it. It should be five five movies for five dollars. Yeah, 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 totally. Uh, you know, if you buy them all together and you get like a, a week a week's worth of um you know, time to watch them. You can watch them as many times as you want I'd in that week. I'd be happy for it to be aggregated where, you know, I select the movie I want and then they recommend four others that'll like it and just Stack them on top as a yeah. bonus, you know. I haven't paid for them. If I've seen them before, oh well. If I haven't, well, there you go, something new. Yeah. Which is what video people used to do in the video stores. Yeah. You know, I'd say you rent one, and all those freebies, I can recommend some for you. Yeah. Oh, now I'm sad. <laughs> Good morning and happy Monday, friends. It's Chloe from Movie Night with the Richie Girls. Hey, Chloe. What am I doing here? <laughs> Surprise! <laughs> oh wow! So this is a little bit different to usual. Um, Just got to change it up, keep it interesting. Life has a habit of throwing curveballs at us, and this week, um, life threw you a doozy, and uh, we were unable to get your segment recorded. So I thought, why not, you know, grab you while we can, <laughs> in the spur of the moment, and and do the segment this way. How fun! Change it up. The theme for this episode is recent discoveries like are there any movies recently that you've seen that um i guess you haven't seen before but you should have yeah i have a really good one for this one actually um so you know how you go through life and you hear all these people say oh my god do you remember that that happened in this movie and that happened in this movie and it's just like a it's a classic movie that you should have seen but you just haven't mm-hmm. that that's that was um big trouble in little china for me and mum was absolutely so disappointed in me that I hadn't <laughs> seen it. Um, and she couldn't believe that she had a child who hadn't seen Big Trouble in Little China. So I, uh, I decided to rectify that this year and I watched that one. I've got a poster of that hanging above my bed. Above your bed? Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> you 
must really love Kurt Russell. I do. And John Carpenter. <laughs> yeah, okay, fair enough. <laughs> well, what did you think of it? Okay, so I don't know what I had in mind about this movie. Um, I was thinking it was something completely different to what it actually was. So when I actually sat down for the first time round, I didn't finish it. I had to turn it off about 10 minutes in. Yeah, I know. Wait for the story to finish. So I had to turn it off because I'm just like, what the fuck is this movie? I don't, I don't get it. I wasn't in the right headspace. So I left it and I went back a week later and I started it again coming into it with a little bit more knowledge and it's just it's just bloody brilliant it's just it, bloody brilliant it's just excellent that's the correct response yeah exactly i don't know i think well, i was ready for you know rivalry chinese gangs or some sort of um asian style gangs fighting each other in the streets and kurt russell being the hero that saves the day or something creates peace between the rival gangs um that's definitely not what it is no, it actually subverts the trope of the the white guy being the hero of the film. He kind of is a hero, but he's he's a bumbling, klutzy kind of buffoon. And it's the best. Yeah, and it's um, oh, gosh, is it Wang Wang Chi? I think is the name of his sidekick, who actually is the hero of the story. I can't remember his name, but it's just he's gorgeous and brilliant. Yeah, and everything about it, I love it. I'm glad you I'm glad you visited this one. I'm glad you loved it. The mysticism of it, you know, we can't this is the problem too, is that this is the eighties, right? And this is back when you were allowed to use the term Oriental. Mm-hmm. And I actually I love the term Oriental because it kind of romantic- a beautiful word. It romanticizes the East, as far right. as I'm concerned. But now apparently it's a little bit derogatory, but in the 80s when they used oriental themes like it was magical and it was glorious and i don't think it's derogatory at all i think it actually showcased asian cinema in a way because it was bringing to the western audiences the kind of cinema they were making in many of the asian countries i i completely agree with you i i mean i'm not asian so i wouldn't find it derogatory myself and and um people of that culture might but i think it's a beautiful word oriental and i think it's it encaptures perfectly what um what these type of movies were portraying so and the the interesting thing is the reason that it's considered to be derogatory is because oriental encapsulated most of the asian cultures in one in one oh of... i see however when they released um i can't remember there was a oh the the raya the disney film raya last mm-hmm. year yep or this year i remember them saying the beauty of this film is it encapsulates many of the asian cultures in one so they're kind of doing the same thing now yeah, exactly. And um, yeah, you're completely right. Raya does encapsulate a lot of the Asian cultures all into one sort of universe, which is, and it's stunning. It's, oh, it's just a beautiful movie, that one. But I, I love the colours in, in this movie, in Big Trouble in Little China. I love the colours. I love the costumes. I loved the languages and how fast they spoke and, and the mysticism of it and just the absolute strangeness of it as well. And Hey, you had no idea. You literally had no idea what was going to happen next. And it was just thrilling and wonderful. Yes, absolutely correct. And uh, <laughs> I'm glad you picked this one. And before uh, before we um, let you run, did you know this movie also inspired Mortal Kombat? 
Yes, I did. You've done your I homework. Did. Yeah. So I did a whole a Facebook story on it and Instagram story on it because, you know, people were so um, worried about me that I hadn't seen it. So I thought I decided to show everybody that I'm, I'm doing it. I'm doing it properly. And I did my research and I was going to even do a whole episode on it. So I, And I still might. Yeah, you still definitely should. But um, I've got to get back to the show. So would you like to take us out? Have a happy Monday, friends. Bye. And now we're down to your final recommendation, Ben. What uh, what little treat do you have for us in your bag and why haven't you seen it until now? Well, I was going to say, like I mentioned at the start of the show, so straight, so um, a Cash on Demand was a movie that I had never heard of. Mm. Uh, it was like a total discovery. This one I'd heard of, for like I since since I started getting into film, I'd I'd known about this film, and just for whatever reason, had no interest in in watching it. Mm. And then I heard them talk about it on, I think it was the Pure Cinema podcast, which is the New Beverly Cinemas yep uh, uh, show. And I was like, you know what? And they and they mentioned because it does M- Emmett Walsh is it does appear in this film, and they said it was this the Coen Brothers saw him in this. Loved him so much, and that's why they cast him in Blood Simple. So I was like, well, okay. <laughs> I love Blood Simple. I love M. Emmett Walsh. Yep. I've got to check this movie out. Uh, and it is, of course, 1979's Straight Time. Yeah. Now, this movie is directed by um, by Ulu Grossbard, although it wasn't originally supposed to be. It was supposed to be Dustin Hoffman. But on the first day of shooting, apparently, he took the entire... It was just an establishing shot of the of him getting out of prison. Um, his character, because he's also the lead actor in it. He took all day, kept insisting on different camera setups, different camera setups. At the end of the day, they hadn't shot a single frame of film. <laughs> so he stepped down as director and, uh, and Ulu Grossbard was hired to take over. So basically this movie is, uh, Dust, is, is Dustin Hoffman plays this guy who gets out of prison uh, after doing six years for theft. Mm. He's a thief. Uh, and uh, he wants to go straight. And he, they send him off. He meets his parole officer, who's M.M. Walsh, who kind of he appears to be a, a, like a nice guy, but he's actually kind of a pretty kind of passive aggressive asshole. Um, although you like the kind of the other side of it is like you can understand doing what he's doing and the people he deals with on a daily basis. Mm. You know, like everyone that he deals with would be lying to him and trying to, you know, pull one over, and he just takes no shit from <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. Um, but anyway, but so that's what often has to deal with him. He and part of the deal is he's got to try and get a job, but he has to tell them that he's you know just got out of prison and he's on parole. He's not allowed. He's got to. St- they want him to stay at a, a halfway house that they of their choosing. So he's he feels like he's in prison even though he's not. Mm-hmm. And then eventually he meets Teresa Teresa Russell, who's also in the film. She works at an employment agency and gets him a job working. I think it's at, at a at a printer's where he's cleaning the floor. He's like a janitor, a janitor role at a printer. Um, and um, he hooks up with his kind of, his old kind of friends, like slash cellmates, like Gary Busey is one of them. Harry Dean Stanton is another wow. one. Mm. Uh, it's like a great cast. And of course, Gary Busey's wife is played by a very, very young Kathy Bates, <laughs> who I did, didn't know was making movies. I was about to say, I, I thought she started her career a bit later. Yeah. And she's, she's like you know, a young 70s kind of mama in this. 
Yeah, no, I think I did. I, I remember her talking about this, actually. Now it's all coming together. Yeah, she right. did one of those Hollywood reporter sort of, you know, let's track through our career. I yeah, think right. that's the one. Yep. Okay. And she's like, she, you know, she's, she basically is like, look, you know, Gary Busey's trying to go straight and he really doesn't need you around. Yeah. Even though it's pretty clear right from the outset, it's actually the other way around. Dustin Hoffman is having more success going straight to Gary Busey. Yep. But um, but also there's a, a surprise cameo from Jake Busey who plays Gary Busey's son in it. So how old was he then? He would have been about six. Wow! Like and it's a great it's he's got some great bits in it, some pretty funny bits. Future Hitcher too. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> so then yeah, as the film goes on, he kind of ends up sinking back into his life of crime. Mm. And the movie is the movie is based on a book by Eddie Bunker, who is Mister Blue from Reservoir Dogs. If you're unfamiliar, and he does have a cameo in the film. Um, Harry Dean Stanton does, is, uh, is his partner. They they go and do some armed well, robberies together. And Eddie Bunker was a real criminal, right? He was a real criminal, yeah. yeah. And he and he turned it around. He wrote a lot of his books while in while being incarcerated. Yeah. Um. And like Harry Dean Stanton does get to sing a song. Which is always you know, both always, of our movies have songs. Have songs in it, which is always good. And you know the robbery st- the stuff is quite harrowing. But the, the I mean the, it's perfect casting for Dustin Hoffman because he he is like there's definitely something wrong with this guy, and he's a he's a dangerous kind of criminal. But it's also Dustin Hoffman, so he just doesn't come across as super menacing yep. or aggressive until he does, and he turns it on, and then you're like, holy fuck! Like it is it is a fantastic film. Definitely worth checking out. Straight time. Hey guys, it's Adam here from Adam's Just Seen and Triple M with another good movie Monday recommendation. Today we are doing later discoveries. And if I'm being honest, I got a bunch of these. My education came from the film store. I was a teenager walking around just grabbing things off the shelf because I liked the look of the cover. Then I'd go, who made this? If it took hold of me. And then I would like fetishize the director's filmography. So it was kind of like an informal education. And I kind of said to myself, like, look, I'm going to just watch everything that comes out every week modern. And I'll try and go back, work my way through, you know, like 90s, 80s, 70s. And that's kind of where I stopped because I was like, you know, I just don't, I want to be encyclopedic, but I can only kind of do this with modern cinema. I don't have time to watch all this stuff. So now and then I feel embarrassed about some of the classics or things that I haven't seen or the things that have fallen through the cracks. But when I get a chance now, I go to the Astor Theatre and see them on the big screen when I can. And so just the other night, I went and saw Barry Lyndon, a Stanley Kubrick film that I had never seen. Uh, well, I pretty sure I had never seen because it all felt pretty new to me and that's kind of embarrassing because my dad bought me a Stanley Kubrick box set when I was 16 and this film definitely was in part of that Warner Brothers release. Um, Barry Lyndon is a pretty incredible film. Um, I normally don't gravitate towards Stanley Kubrick films. I think that they're kind of cold. I never kind of felt like a sense of you know of uh, journey with any of the protagonists. I felt alienated by his films. But now when I go back and I revisit them, I notice how kind of sly and funny what Stanley's doing. You know, I mean, he's kind of always being called like the anti-Spielberg. And you can see this here in this movie. Like, I mean, Barry is, uh, it's a funny movie. Uh, and it's got this cool travelogue element that I've always liked in films because you can have this episodic nature where the protagonist stumbles through history, through a journey, and has interactions with character actors, and you can have these kind of memorable, idiosyncratic scenes. And, uh, you know, Ryan O'Neill is great here as Redmond Barry, this guy who's kind of stumbling his way through fate. Um, I've always found something about, you know, aristocrats to kind of be stuffy and funny, 
And this film is utterly gorgeous to look at as to, to as well because it's iconic for its naturally lit cinematography and like all Kubrick productions, it is meticulous in all its small details. So, I mean, the movie does go for like a butt-numbing uh, three and a half hours. But, uh, you know, I mean, I, yeah, I was kind of transfixed by it and I, I think that there was something that I was like why the hell hadn't I checked this out earlier so I was grateful that I checked out Barry Lyndon so if you have got a hole in your Kubrick filmography the size of Barry check it out immediately I highly recommend it well we did it Ben it's not too clunky at all no task no. is impossible for this dynamic duo <laughs> Holy film discoveries, Batman. <laughs> Super fun, though. Um, I hope everybody listening has some food for thought and added them to the list. Uh, no need to take notes, though, because we've uploaded all of the aforementioned titles onto our Letterboxd account. So check out letterboxd.com forward slash Monday. Um, oh, don't forget, we also have a website, goodmoviemonday.com. Everything we do is archived there. Every episode, all the videos, all the links to our platforms and more. Ben, have you ever seen a 1984 sex comedy called The Rosebud Beach Hotel? No, I've got it on tape, but uh, I have not watched Colin it. Colin Camp and Peter Scolari and uh, Christopher Lee's in that. What about The Further Adventures of Tennessee Buck? Have you seen that? I've also got that on tape, but I haven't seen Is that with Keith David or David yeah, Keith? Yeah, what about 1981's Lunch Wagon? I've also got that on tape. Well, there you go. New film discoveries around every corner, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I've got all of these on cassette tape. Of course you do. Lunch Wagon looks fantastic. Like people talk about that uh, really well. Yeah, I, I just pluck those names out just because I'm like, they're movies I've not seen and I thought, maybe oh, you haven't. Maybe I haven't, yeah. Man, nice we should look. watch them all. Like, <laughs> We'll keep a track of these and then for one of the first shows when we return next year, we can each talk about, we can talk about these films. Oh, mate, you're setting up something. <laughs> Something's in motion here and I like it. Um, Don't worry. Just go to the toilet. It'll pass. <laughs> uh, big thanks to the Good Movie Monday players. That's what we're going to call them from now on. Oh, yeah. They're not quite ready for <laughs> primetime players. Uh, Jarrett Gamo, Chloe, Adam, Joe, Chad, and James. And, of course, Tia, who may or may not remain a mystery to most. Yeah. Keep listening to our show. All will be revealed. Uh, I think we've done well, mate. Yes, and uh, thank you for helping me launch my ASMR slash mukbang career. No, oh, well, you're welcome. Um, I look forward to seeing you all on Chatterbait. Um. <laughs> Cams.com. Depends who offers us more money. Good movie moaning? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, let's sign off with another song of your choice. Uh, did you want to sign off with this and let them know what it is? Do you remember? I, I've, what's the name of the song? It's Making Time. Making Time by The Creation. That's right. From my ultimate, for me, this is my ultimate film discovery. I went to see, it's from the Rushmore soundtrack, and I went to see Rushmore theatrically. I had no idea who Wes Anderson is, was, is. I had no idea what the film was about. It was a complete blind purchase. I was like, I'm going to check this out. And it, it blew me away. It was one of those movies that I was about 20 minutes into it, and I was like, I felt, I started feeling a bit depressed because I'm like, I can never experience this film for the first time again. Because <laughs> it was just so good. Like, I loved everything about it. I loved every, I wanted to be Max Fisher. I wanted to be, what's his name? Uh, Bill Murray's character, Bloom. I can't remember what his first name is. Mm. Um, and I instantly fell in love with Olivia Williams. It, 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 and it had a Wilson brother in it. It had two, like, it had, it had, does it have two Wilson brothers? No, it's just got Luke in it. Let's have a listen to what that's all about. Uh, we'll see you next week, everybody. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.